Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we travel the roots of gospel music, see Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. through the eyes of a child, and explore America's great migration. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're celebrating black history in literary color. First up, award-winning artist and Coretta Scott King illustrator Michelle Wood shows us the rhythm and roots of gospel music in her book. And starting from Africa and the influence of Africa on American, you know, American music. As a child of the Civil Rights Movement, children's book author Paula Young Shelton remembers Dr. King and the movement from a different perspective. That was what was most important to him, and I really, truly believe that everything he did was to create a better world for them. And Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson explores the great migration that led six million blacks to leave the American South in search of a better life. 90% of the people were, were stuck in the South at this time. They were living in a caste system that's almost unimaginable. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Michelle Wood is an artist whose work reflects a deep sense of history and place. As a painter, illustrator, designer, and writer, she has gained wide recognition and has earned multiple awards, including the prestigious American Book Award for her first book, Going Back Home. She's also won a Coretta Scott King Illustrator Award from the American Library Association for her book, I See the Rhythm. And Michelle's artistry explodes in a new book, I See the Rhythm of Gospel, and we're so pleased to welcome her to our show. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. This book, this new book, it, it, the colors are so vibrant, and uh, we love this book. And I understand this is really the first time the art form of gospel music has been blended with black history in a book. What led you and your, your partner in rhythm, I'm calling her, uh, Toyomi, I guess, to, to create this work? Hmm. Um, this is kind of uh, a different journey. Um, how we got started or how I got started is that an idea had came to me. Um, it was backwards. Our format is backwards where the writing, the artist comes first and then the writing comes afterwards. And in this book, it was the idea of I wanted to do gospel and I felt it in my spirit to do it. And I sat on the idea for about a year until I approached Toy. Um, we met in San Diego and decided to work together as we talked about the project. Um, so that's how it initially came about. The book covers some monumental moments in black history, stretching way back to the beginning of slavery in the, in the 1500s. How were you able to condense this history into an illustrative picture book? There's so much history, it's very hard to narrow that down because we have to weigh out who had the most influence at that time period, um, who stood out more than others, and uh, because there's so many musicians, as you look at the time period that uh, came about and that had influence, and some lasted more decades than others and more influence, like the, the women of uh, gospel music. Mm -hmm. um, you have Shirley Caesar of her time period, and one person that I fought for was Rosetta Thorpe. Because when I saw her and read her life story and then saw some, you can go on YouTube and see videos of her and listen to her guitar and the people that she influenced, it, she was very radical, reminding me of, of, of uh, how they used to say about Bo Diddley when he went to uh, chess, chess records after he went to VJ records and they said he was too radical and then he goes to chess records and he blows up. But... When you have uh, Rosetta Tharp and you listen to her guitar playing, where she had that uh, blues influence, but she brought that gospel sound, mm -hmm. and she was just uh, she was just a, a pioneer of her time, and she was before her time to me. So we looked for pioneers and people who were out front. Um, and that's how we narrowed it down. It was very difficult for us, but the things that I put in my paintings, 
I tried to translate. I have to look at clothes. I have to look at the time period. I have to look at, um, like in the 50s, it's more pastels or it's how the buildings were. And, or, and I didn't want to focus on just the musicians. I wanted to focus on the people as well. The reflection, just like I see the rhythm, it was a reflection of that time period, of that decade, and of the people. And that's what we wanted to really focus more on than not just the musician, but what affected, you know, what was going on during that decade. This book really is transcendent of just the uh, experience of African Americans from a, from a religious standpoint. It covers the totality of history, and it connects it to so many things that have happened around the world. How did yes. you arrive at the approach for tying in early history from the 15th century to the arrival of Barack Obama in 2008? That was quite a journey, as uh, you alluded to earlier. Yes, it is a journey, but it's our history. It's America's history. And um, how do we arrive at that point is you start from the beginning, um, and starting from Africa and the influence of Africa on American, you know, American music and how um, the um, the call and response that you have in the music and the drums and and uh, everything is all connected to one. You even have. Um, where the we even get to jazz, where there's a little bit of influence there, where you have a Thomas Dorsey. I'm going through so many things that are going through my mind. I have Thomas Dorsey, where his influence was that rhythm sound, was the blues sound, but it got into gospel, and he um, and that's where he found it with gospel in 1930, 1932. I'm trying to think of all the dates. You just have to go through all the research and and try to incorporate as much as possible and connect the dots as much as possible as you can. But we're all connected. Even from this rhythm, the holy hip-hop, you find those rhythms, those same rhythms are still in the music. And it's like the core of the music, the core of the beat. Um, and it's like the timekeeper, the drummer is the timekeeper. So it's it's um, all linked together. How does one go about capturing history and distilling it to a, a single image? How is that challenge for you? I don't see my, my work as just a single image because it's a continuation from one image to another of like the image that is about slavery and about Harriet Tubman. And in that, you do have a little girl that's in the back of it. Her name is Missy, and she's going through the journeys with you. And she's going through each page as you go through it. And in that painting, there's different symbols that's layering and that's telling the history and indicating, like, the the leaf that's on her dress, that they're going north and, and where they're going is to Canada. But during that time period um, and, and researching the flags and of that time period, it wasn't a leaf. But we wanted to, com to communicate that more literally than to confuse you. And then, um, and like the Underground Railroad, having the railroad in the water. And there's many layers, and I don't see it as one image. I see it as a continuation of a story that continues to, you know, as you turn the page, I wanted you to visualize and feel like you're in that decade and not just um, they're all being the same. I want you, when you turn that page, that you see that image, that you're in that a decade, and then you move on to the next decade, and this see the images in each painting is there with you as you go through the the, the history. You know, I, w I was going to ask you about um, Missy because uh, she is she's a hidden. I mean, this little girl, as you mentioned, it goes through kind of vicariously the history with the the characters that you painted, and I love as a, as a little girl, I've always loved those. Um, those the puzzles and those pictures where you have to find the you know images within mm -hmm. images, and there's a couple of pages you did such a masterful job of of camouflaging her. Um, there's there's <laughs> Look for a, the pigtails. Yeah, that's the key. That's the giveaway. Look for the pigtails. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, Missy's all is based on me and my nickname when I was a little girl. Name is Missy. And the only people that will call me Missy are family members. So till this day, if I go out and someone says Missy, I know that it's a family member. And uh, my mother called me Missy, 
And she would tell me and always encourage me, there's more to see than Indiana. There's more outside your boundaries. So uh, my mother didn't work in, um, uh, she didn't have uh, a lot of money. But when she did, she would take me to New York or she will take me to the Bahamas or Kings Island or wherever she could take me, Chicago, to the Science Museum. She would just take me and show me there's more to see. So... And putting it in I See the Rhythm, I also, you know, start noticing that it was in my other paintings. Like in Going Back Home, Missy's there sitting on her aunt's knee, mm-hmm. and she's getting her hair braided. So subconsciously, I did it at first. It wasn't a conscious decision to do it. And, I, you know, as I noticed in some of my paintings, she just continued to appear. And just like in another book I did, Just Like Me, uh, I talked about myself because we wanted to do self-portraits. There's 14 different artists doing self-portraits. But Missy just uh, came about more subconsciously, and then now she's just a fabric. She's there all the time. <laughs> well, I'm more noticing her, and I'm more comfortable in uh, presenting her and, and um, telling people that's me, that that's Missy as a little girl. One of the aspects that makes this a really contemporary book is the CD that just as the book covers the gamut of the African-American experience through music, talk about how the music and the book really come together to tell this story. The music is very important to the book, and that was one of the things that we wanted for the book because I See the Rhythm uh, we had such a large request to have a CD because it was used. Uh, we, as we go into different schools, teachers will request for us to bring music, or people would request that we have music for this particular book. And we wanted you to be able to go through the decades and that you'll be able to have the music uh, because you, you learn so many, on so many different levels. You learn visually. You learn by reading. You learn um, by hearing. And by hearing that music and having the visual as well as Toy's wonderful writing, this is just three ways for you to learn and to and to complement each other. And it was very important, like Mahalia Jackson, to have her voice, um, to have uh, Holy Culture and Fred Hammond and um, I believe it's C.C. Winans that's on here. And also, I used to sell that song. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, I worked at a bookstore. It's a Christian bookstore when I came back to Indianapolis because I had um, uh, stopped working for a while, and I went to work at a Christian bookstore. And I used to sell Hallelujah Pray, and I used to tell people how wonderful that song is. And I'm so amazed that it's on our um, on our CD because she used to have this 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 uh, DVD, um, it was the throne room. It wasn't the CD, it was the DVD, and how they choreographed all the songs to come together. And it was um, because they started out in high praise and worship, and then she went in and she put on her dress. And she went into Hallelujah Praise before then, I think. And I loved how that how that worked together. And it's so ironic that today we have that on our CD. And I think she's just wonderful and such a great spirit. And um, on that, just having that CD on our book was just amazing. And to have that for people to share and to play that and to read in that way, it's all there tangible for you and for the child, for the teacher or the parent. Uh, and you're constantly learning and teaching at the same time, mm-hmm. and it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Michelle, one of the things that is remarkable from my standpoint about the book is that it really takes one all over the world from Bronzeville on Chicago's south side to Harlem to South Africa. It touches on a lot of places that speak to me, and you spoke about the impact of some of these travels that uh, even with uh, your mom on modest means that you were able to experience the world, uh, even relatively close to Indianapolis. And so this is a very powerful book in that regard for those who may not have the means, but they can 
begin to see the connections from so many of these important places all over that have had a say, not just in African-American history, but in black history and African history. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, in black history and as well as, you know, and I say very much that it's America's history because I don't pinpoint it to just to say it's black history. America is, is such a melting pot. And it's our history. And I want also children to be proud, African-American children, to be proud of their history and their contribution to society. It's, it's so much that we've done. Mm-hmm. And it's so much that we've, uh, that we've captured in this book. And so much to be proud of. And I look at the faith, you know, we had to have had so much faith. And that's so much that you can embody is to have, you know, faith and to believe and to believe in a future, to believe that there's something better and to keep pushing and keep pushing and push through slavery and depression and and um, as a, and then the civil rights movement and just keep going until we're here today and we're still pushing forward. And uh, and it's amazing how much strength that we have as people, mm-hmm. you know, and that we we're growing and we have a black president now. But look at the person that prayed before, the person that had the faith and to get through those troubled times to get to where we are today. And I am so thankful for those that have gone before us and for those that are paving the way today. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and you know, I was going to ask you, kind of touching on the the, the gospel uh, theme of this book, I was going to ask you what you hope and want readers to take away from from reading this book, and if part of um, what you desire is just a uh, an acknowledgement and um, an appreciation for. Um, you know the the Lord in in our lives and in in the grace that that we we He gives us every day is that part of part of uh, what you hope? That is part of it. I mean, that is part of me and my fabrication that I had so much faith in in the ability because I came from my mother. She had so much strength and she had so much faith and hope and she always tell me to have hope and to have faith and I want people to come come away with this with an exploration that, and that they have explored um, a little bit, a taste of our history because there's so much more that we didn't incorporate um, and that they have an appreciation for our culture as, you know, a little more than they did before mm-hmm. and that they'll be proud, especially the children, they're proud of that history um, because I always say that you got to know where you came from in order to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I kind of uh, I kind of feel that there is perhaps another I Have a Rhythm book coming up at some point. Am, am, I, uh, am I off base or what do you have coming next? Um. Well, we're we're talking about some things now, uh-huh. and we're we're trying to move forward. We both are on some uh, different schedules right now. We're coming back together, and we are going to put um, uh, some things together. And hopefully, you know, in the near future, we'll have something. I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm being prayerful about it. <laughs> well, well, we, I hope I dance around that. <laughs> well, we we. Look, we look forward to uh, to whatever you're doing next, uh, Michelle. But uh, but uh, I I see the rhythm of gospel is a wonderful book, and I thank you for coming on our show today to to share to share your your artistry and the history. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure being on your show. Coming up, children's author Paula Young Shelton shares her stories about Dr. King in her new book, Child of the Civil Rights Movement. That was what was most important to him, and I really, truly believe that everything he did was to create a better world for them. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. 
It's easy to make a big impact. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world. Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio. On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet. And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view. Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio. And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make worldfootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Entry into our travel photo contest has just closed, and the contest is now in the voting phase. Make sure you visit our Facebook page to cast your vote for your favorite photo. If you missed entering this contest, subscribe to our newsletter on worldfootprints.com to receive an early notice of our next contest. Remember, paradise is waiting. Our World Footprints Travel Photo Contest is now in the voting phase, and we'd like to thank our contest partners, Morgan Bay Beach Resort, the Eden of the Caribbean. Visit morganbayresort.com to experience paradise. Grotto Bay Beach Resort on Bermuda. Visit grottobay.com to create your Bermudaful memory. And arizonatourismcenter.com, giving you the best of Arizona at the right price. If you missed entering this contest, another opportunity to win a great travel prize is just around the corner. So make sure you like us on Facebook and subscribe to our newsletter to receive the first notice of our next contest and other exciting World Footprints news. Hi, my name is Elaine and I'm from California and I like World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, 
Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Swimming with her Uncle Martin. That's how a young girl named Paula remembers Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Our journey on the Civil Rights Trail for Black History Month brings a human side to the icons of the Civil Rights Movement thanks to Paula Young Shelton, the daughter of former UN Ambassador and Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young. She shares her story in a book for kids, Child of the Civil Rights Movement. Paula talks about the civil rights family and how food brought everyone together in her home as a child as she reads a passage from her book. Like all families, we'd have dinner together. And since there were so few restaurants that served African Americans, we would often eat at friends' houses. We might walk around the corner to Uncle Ralph and Aunt Juanita's or go to Uncle Martin and Uncle Reddit. Or everyone would come to our house. One night, when it was our turn to host, I sat under the kitchen table, watching and listening. Food, Paula tells us, made the freedom fighters feel right at home when they came to stay at our house in Atlanta. But that was, a, that was the thing that brought us all together. As um, you know, my mother's macaroni and cheese was famous, <laughs> and my father would always bring somebody else home for dinner. At the last minute, he would bring somebody else. And she didn't that an eye. It was just always... It just seemed like there was always room at our table. There was always enough for everyone. And so I don't remember a lot. I was very young. I don't remember a lot of exactly what happened. But the feeling of community and family was just really strong. And I definitely felt a level of comfort, even though there were constantly strangers in our house all the time. Because you couldn't stay at hotels, so if people were in town protesting, um, they come sleep on our floor. We wake up in the morning, there'd be somebody camped out in the living room, and there were always people coming through our house, and that was a really good feeling for me. I felt good about that. Dr. King loved the debates he had with other leaders, which Paula described as a symphony. With everyone trying to talk at once, I thought they sounded just like instruments tuning up before a concert. Blackwell, the professor, was like a trombone. So smooth, clearly presenting the facts. Jose ambled around the table in his overalls, tooting like a tuba. I was in the last time, and we got to go back. Although the instrument analogy Paula uses in her book is helpful to kids to understand the intensity of the debate among the civil rights leadership, this was all part of a plan by Dr. King to encourage healthy, vigorous debate and build consensus. The instruments, the way that my father describes their meetings is that he says Dr. King would not talk a lot in the meetings and that um, the only time Dr. King would get mad at him is when he agreed with everybody else because he wanted those different opinions. He wanted to hear all of those points of view and then he would make a decision. And so that sort of, uh, the, the symphony was sort of my image of those discussions that everyone has a part to play and everybody had very strong opinions. Um, but Dr. King would just kind of take it all in and then make what he thought was the best decision. One of the goals Paula had for the book was to show a lighter human side of Dr. King, which she does with her swimming story. Uncle Martin had a big, broad smile and eyes that twinkled. Come here, girl, he said, whenever our families would meet at one of the only schools for African Americans in Atlanta, the Olive Street YMCA. Are you ready to get in that water and teach me how to swim? Run! I would run as fast as my skinny little legs could carry me. Run and leap, leap into his wide open arms and fly. I scream and laugh. My arms clapped tightly around his neck as he pretended to throw me in. Uncle Martin was really my uncle. Not by right now. Paula elaborates further on the side of Dr. King she got to see as a child. And that was really one of my primary goals was to make him a human being. You know, we, we know the holiday and you think of him as a statue or, I mean, he's just this icon. But I don't think that children know him as a human being, and I really wanted to 
humanize him and let them see him as a person. And that picture of him holding out his arms, um, the illustrator Raul Colon, I think, did a, a fabulous job with his book. And I did not describe that to him, but when I saw the picture, that was exactly how I remember Dr. King. That whenever we would come around, he was, you know, he wanted to play with us. He was, he loved children. And in fact, my father says that the first time he actually met Dr. King, they had both just become new fathers. And he had been hearing about Dr. King, and he was so excited to talk to him, and you know, wanted to ask him about his political views, and all he wanted to talk about was his new baby. And it just, you know, that was what was most important to him. And I really, truly believe that everything he did was to create a better world for them. Because of her father's career in civil rights and as a UN ambassador, Paula's life journey has been remarkable as a global citizen. Well, I did. Um, I went, grew up in Atlanta, and then my father went to the United Nations, and we moved to New York. So I spent a couple of years of high school in New York, went to the United Nations high school there, and was able to do a little bit of traveling with him. It was always interesting um, when we were in New York to have leaders from other countries, uh, particularly African countries, come to our house, and so I would be exposed to that, and that was fascinating to see these other leaders from all over the world coming in and to meet kids whose parents were in the UN and, and had these sort of international experiences. And uh, I went to college in North Carolina because I really wanted to get back to the South. The South is my home. And But after that I decided I wanted to teach and so I started looking for different ways, places that I could go experiment with teaching really and I ended up going to Uganda a village uh, called Gulu in Uganda, and I taught seventh and eighth graders, and that was probably the most uh, incredible experience of my life. I spent about a year there. I had uh, about 60 kids in a class, and they walked to the school barefoot, um, and I never had a discipline problem. <laughs> I've been, you know, there were 60 kids eager to learn, and the biggest problem was getting them to give their opinions because they were just so used to sitting and listening and doing whatever the teacher said. And so that was an incredible experience for me. And then after that, I came back to the United States and continued to teach in Atlanta and Washington. And because of her dad and Dr. King, Paula learned some important life lessons that are powerful not only for kids, but for adults. Well, I think, um, I think getting to know people on an individual basis, we're so quick to make judgments about groups of people and, and stereotypes about people, and I think getting to know individuals is one of the most important things to understand more about a person. And also being able to, to know their story. And um, this is part of why I wanted to tell this story was to uh, help children understand what happened during that period of time, but also to just share what it was like for a child at that time, the kind of things that I experienced. And as I go around, I really encourage others to share their experiences with that same period of time or just being able to pass down your story to your children helps them understand historical events so much better and clearer and make a personal connection to it. Um, the other thing that I'll, I believe that I've learned from Dr. King and particularly my father is that he always said that you can do anything in the world if you don't care who gets the credit for it. And Dr. King got lots of credit for uh, bringing about dramatic change in this country. Uh, but there were so many other people that sacrificed their lives and their time and their energy to make this change come about. And we don't know their names. And that's why at, at our, the dinner table, I wanted to introduce some of those people to children. And in the back of the book, I have uh, little biographies about some of the folks that I knew personally. But we can do anything if we are not concerned about you know, making sure that I get the credit for it. That as long as you're willing to make um, that sacrifice and to help others, you can think about dramatic. 
Coming up, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson warns us with the story of America's great migration. Ninety percent of the people were, were stuck in the South at this time. They were living in a caste system that's almost unimaginable. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hello, this is Mertice Padola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love World Footprints Radio. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world, Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals, from environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information, including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio. On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet. And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view. Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio. And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Did you know that World of Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make worldfootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Entry into our travel photo contest has just closed, and the contest is now in the voting phase. Make sure you visit our Facebook page to cast your vote for your favorite photo. If you missed entering this contest, subscribe to our newsletter on worldfootprints.com to receive an early notice of our next contest. Remember, paradise is waiting. Our World Footprints Travel Photo Contest is now in the voting phase, and we'd like to thank our contest partners, Morgan Bay Beach Resort, the Eden of the Caribbean. 
Visit MorganBayResort.com to experience paradise. Grotto Bay Beach Resort on Bermuda. Visit GrottoBay.com to create your Bermudaful memory. And ArizonaTourismCenter.com, giving you the best of Arizona at the right price. If you miss entering this contest, another opportunity to win a great travel prize is just around the corner. So make sure you like us on Facebook and subscribe to our newsletter to receive the first notice of our next contest and other exciting World Footprints news. Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've traveled all over the world. But whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's Great Migration by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson chronicles the story of six million African Americans who left the South from 1915 to 1970 in search of freedom and opportunity. In the process, they not only changed a nation, but changed the world. This epic journey not only transformed society, politics, economics, and culture, but forever changed the course of history. Over the course of writing this book, Isabel interviewed over a thousand people, and she shares her great migration story and why she wrote the book. It's quite emotional for me ever to speak in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, because it is Washington that was the city of my parents' dreams. It was Washington that drew my mother from Rome, Georgia, uh, at the, toward the end of World War II, and my father the following decade from Petersburg, Virginia, where they met, and after a long courtship that went on for so long that I almost did not get here, <laughs> finally married and uh, had me, and without this great migration, I would not exist which is in many respects why I even wrote this book. I wrote this book because I grew up around people who, in a neighborhood filled with people whose uh, parents had come from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. It was so predictable, so beautifully predictable, such a community of people who all had the same roots. And I grew up around uh, the, the elders in the community were all people who looked after one another and looked after the children. If you're walking down the street, there were people who would, who would say, well, we saw Isabel walking down the street, and where was she, and who was that boy that she was with? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so there, were, there was a sense of community, and I didn't realize at the time that that community didn't just happen to be. That community had uh, sprung up because... Uh, because people made a decision, the decision of their lives, to leave the only place that they'd ever known for a place that they had never seen in hopes that life would be better. And this is in so many ways the classic American universal story of how all Americans in some ways got on this soil one way or the other. Somebody had to endure a very difficult trip from far away in order for people to, for the United States to be populated as it is. And there was this migration that occurred uh, from the beginning of World War One until the 1970s when the essential reasons for the migration came to an end, an end that is the reason why Washington, D.C. looks the way that it is, the Washington, D.C. area looks the way that it is, the reason that Chicago looks the way that it is, New York, Detroit, Cleveland, Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, Oakland, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, all of the major cities of the North, the Midwest, and the West were changed forever by the individual decisions of six million people who decided that they did not want to take the caste system that they were under in the South for one more day. Here, Isabel gives us some perspective on what the Great Migration is and why growing up, few, if any, spoke of the Great Migration as such. Let me tell you a little bit about what the Great Migration is and why we never even talked about it. Growing up, I never heard the term Great Migration. My mother never said she was part of the Great Migration. When I was going out and doing the research on this book, I would interview people. I would go to senior centers. I would go to AARP meetings. I'd go to churches and uh in, in New York, where everyone was from South Carolina, everyone was from South Carolina, and, um, and I would say to them, I'm, I'm doing a book about the Great Migration, and I just get blank looks, and I'd say, was any one part of the Great Migration, not a hand would go up, 
And then I would say, well, did anyone leave North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia or Virginia between the years of 1918? Very few people would say that because there are very few people who are still alive from that time until 1970, and every hand was gone. And so that meant that they were part of what demographers call the Great Migration. Now, this Great Migration began during World War One and didn't end until 1970, and it involved six million people, six million people. When this migration began, 90% of all African Americans were living in the South, 90%, in some ways imprisoned, held captive, you might say, because they wanted, they would have wanted to get out, but they couldn't. There was no opportunity that they could be assured of that would allow them to be able to make a life for themselves uh, outside of the, the place of their birth. And so, the world opened up when the North needed labor. The North needed labor during World War One because there was a war going on in Europe. Immigration from Europe came to a halt, and suddenly the foundries, the factories, the slaughterhouses, the steel mills, the railroads all needed work, and so they looked for the cheapest labor in the country, cheapest labor in the land, and that took them to African Americans in the South, and that's when they began to recruit. <coughs> They began to recruit, in, but quietly, because the South did not want to lose their cheap labor. They did everything they could to keep these people from leaving. They would, uh, they would arrest people on the railroad platforms, arrest them wholesale, pad tickets. These are supposedly free people. Emancipation Proclamation had been passed 50 or more years before this and yet they were arrested on the railroad platforms. They would arrest people in their seats on the train once they were on the train with the tickets that they had worked so hard in order to save up for. And when those things didn't work, they would, they would, if there were too many people to arrest, they would wave the train on through. So these people had saved up for so long with their tickets, tickets of freedom in their hand, that the train wouldn't stop. And this was the power of the people who were in control and didn't want this cheap labor to leave. They made it very difficult for the people to leave. African Americans leaving the American South in search of a better life is a universal story that has played out time and time again throughout the course of human history. As Isabel tells us, African Americans left the South to escape a caste system known as Jim Crow, which perverted laws and social relationships to deny blacks their freedom. Jim Crow was, in fact, a caste system. These people were living under a caste system, the forebears of most African Americans in the North and the West. Ninety percent of these, ninety percent of the people were were stuck in the South at this time. They were living in a caste system that's almost unimaginable. There are no references in this book to restrooms or water fountains. None, because we already know about that. We already know about that. What I wanted to do was find out what was it beyond that, because it wasn't limited to that. This caste system determined that from the moment you were born, you were assigned to a particular caste, which meant there were certain jobs you could have, certain jobs you couldn't have. And this is everyone of all races would have been assigned a particular caste, almost as if you were in India or some other part of the world. That meant that upon birth, there were certain things that you were allowed to do, certain things you were not allowed to do. You, if you were African American, there were you 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 must have, you had to step off the sidewalk. You could not shake the hand of a white person. You could not you could not look into the eye of a white person as you were greeting them. You had to wait to be spoken to before speaking to them first. That's just that's just normal protocol that was accepted or expected at the time. But it went so much farther than that. It meant that a black person and a white person in Birmingham it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person in Birmingham to play checkers together against the law. Someone must have seen a black person and a white person playing checkers on some park bench somewhere in Birmingham and said and saw they were having just too good a time and decided that the entire foundation of the South, the Southern uh, civilization, was in peril if we permitted this to happen and made that a law. And this, this, meant, this hurt everybody. It hurt the white person who wanted to play checkers with this, their friend or the person they were playing with. I mean, it, it's hard to believe, but a lot of people think of the, the, the uh, cost to black people, and the cost was, more born, was much harshly, more harshly borne by black people than any other group. But it also meant that many people who might have been the best of friends and even had the opportunity to even meet one another or spend time with one another. Isabel describes how the artificial nature of Jim Crow used violence to enforce compliance to it. And because it was so artificial and so hard to control people in such a manner, the only way that this system, this caste system, could be maintained was with extreme force and violence. Violence to such a degree that every four days, 
somewhere in the South, an African American was lynched that every four days from the time just before Plessy versus Ferguson, before the beginning of the Jim Crow uh, laws were when it went into effect, and in a couple of, uh, several decades into the Great Migration, an African American mm -hmm. was lynched every four days. That was what it took to maintain such an artificial caste system that meant that it was so extreme that there needed to be reminders to everyone of what was at stake if anyone were to break the law, black or white. And some, there were whites who suffered also under the same rule. There were whites who might have lost all their business if they were seen breaking the rules. So the caste system was in some ways, uh, it, was, it was a caste system, C-A-S-T-E, but almost, if you think about the other word, caste, that holds you in a fixed place, everyone was held in a fixed place in the same way that a caste does. As Isabel describes the three ways of migration to the North, Midwest, and West, she shares why the journey of freedom was so important and why being on the right side of history and Northern geography matter to African Americans. Which we're all familiar with, which takes people from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia to Washington, D.C., which in other parts of the country, they'll say, well, Washington's not the North. As if you're in Mississippi, Washington is the North. <laughs> 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 um, another thing, just for those who are interested in history, it, it is, it is uh, without question the North because it was, uh, what side was it on during the Civil War? And in the South, they take that very seriously. What side you were on in the Civil War makes a big difference even to this day. You could be at a meeting in, in, in Atlanta and people would say, well, you know, it's raining, just, it's raining so hard, it's just like when Sherman came and, and, and tore down Atlanta, thinking, it's things like that. <laughs> <laughs> they do. It's what's happening Washington, D.C., in fact, there's a beautiful quote in the, um, in the book from, uh, that comes from uh, a book that I was reading about, and I, I thought it was so beautiful that I wanted to include it in this one, and it was from a man who was in Georgia who was asked as he was preparing to leave Georgia, where was he going to go? And he said, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and of course now Washington, D.C. encompasses, you know, the idea of it encompasses all of, all of the metropolitan area, but he said, I'm going to Washington, D.C., and they said, well, why are you going to Washington, D.C.? And they said, I want to be as near to the flag as I can get. <laughs> and I just thought that showed you how that desperation and that desire to be fully American and to be able to experience all the rights and privileges that came with citizenship that they had not been able to experience in the South. And so these people were, this was one of the migration streams. And that stream, Washington, D.C. was the first stop. And a lot of people got off in Washington and said, this is far enough, I don't need to go <laughs> this is fine. But of course, it would carry people to Philadelphia, to Boston, to Baltimore, Philadelphia, and then New York, and then all not to Boston. The uh, second stream was the Midwest stream, which took people from uh, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, uh, Tennessee and Arkansas up to Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Cincinnati, uh, Minneapolis, and, and the entire Midwest. And then the final stream was that which took people from Texas and Louisiana out to California. Those people had, a, had they went farther than many people come, who come from other countries, say from parts of Mexico. Their migration was farther than that from many people who were actually immigrants, truly immigrants to this country. So these people were going a long ways away in order to get to the freedom that had not come from the Emancipation Proclamation. They're the ones that had to actually make it happen for themselves. And that's why I find it so inspiring. The Great Migration unleashed African-American talent, making it a culture force that reshaped everything from literature, sports, and music. Here, Isabel explains how the Great Migration changed America's ear for music. The American ear, and I would argue the human ear, is different as a result of the Great Migration. We simply would not be listening to the kind of music that we listen to had there been no Great Migration. And that is because every musical form of the 20th century was informed by, if not completely created by, the migration of these people taking the folk music of the South, the blues and the spirituals and the gospels, coming to the big cities of the North and the, and the West and the Midwest, and having that music be informed and shaped by the exposure to the, and the metabolism of the northern cities, and most importantly, being recorded. I mean, they were making beautiful music with their with their twelve string guitars in um, the delta of Mississippi, but no one was hearing it other than themselves. Only when they left could people hear it, and there are people all over the world who heard it. When it comes to jazz. Jazz simply would not be what it is had there been a great migration. Miles Davis, his parents migrated from Arkansas 
to Illinois where he had the luxury really, which he would not have had in the cotton country of Arkansas, to spend hours upon hours that are necessary to become the genius that he, to de develop the genius that was within him um, musically. And then when it gets to Motown, Motown simply would not have existed. Absolutely there is no way that Motown would have existed had there been no great migration. And that's because Barry Gordy, um, my, his parents migrated from Georgia to Detroit. For all that the Great Migration represented as a social and cultural force, it is a watershed moment in America and human history that changed all of our lives. As Isabel remarks on this moment in history, its impact and why we are unlikely to see anything like it again in America. Um, the, the Great Migration in some ways can't be replicated because of the fact that this was a defection as much as it was. It was not simply moving because your job has transferred you to another place. This was, a, this was a watershed moment in American history that helped pave the way for the civil rights movement and all the freedoms that we have. Remember in those days when this migration began, they left at great peril. They left not knowing if they would ever return and see their homeland again, or even look into the face of their parents again. They also, uh, once they left, they ended up uh, having to, uh, they ended up leaving and proving to the South that the lowest caste members of, of our country were, they had options, first, for the first time in history, had options and were willing to take them. That was a huge message to the South. It's one reason why the South was so nervous about them leaving. Secondly, they ended up providing haven for the people who stayed in the South who ultimately would be the ones who were facing those dogs and the fire hoses. They provided haven. They also provided um, an inspiration for those people who were leaving because they had a chance to see what freedom felt like whenever they would go and visit a loved one, a cousin, or someone when they came to visit. And they also offered hope because they would come back and visit the people back home. So they were constantly visiting and, and giving inspiration. So there was a lot going on. In other words, this great migration helped pave the way for the civil rights movement that we now can take for granted. Because the civil rights movement would have happened, but it would have happened later had there not been some, had the South not seen this outpouring of its lifeblood, meaning the workers. <laughs> They, they, had to be, they had to realize that they could no longer take advantage of this oversupply of labor. So what I'm trying to say is that there is a continuum, a long continuum of what it has taken to get us to this point. From Emancipation Proclamation, which did not live up to its name, did not come into effect until the people made themselves free by leaving, which is an inspiration to all of us, that freedom is within us and then paved the way for the civil rights movement because Martin Luther King was one of the people who participated in the Great Migration by going to Boston University where he met his wife, Coretta Scott, and then returned home inspired by realizing now what the possibilities were, what it felt like to be treated as a full human being, and he went back and led the civil rights movement. So there's a direct connection. And these people in the original migration were sending money back home to the parents, the grandparents that they might not have been able to see, but they were sending money back home to support both the families and the civil rights movement. So the Great Migration helped to lead the way to the South changing which made it possible for there to be a reverse migration for the children and the grandchildren now. The people who were part of the original migration did not want to return and often were frightened for their children even to this day who might be living in the South now because they still harbor and experience. They, they are still living with the, uh, the heartbreak and the pain of what they endured. But the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, are not burdened with that because the sacrifices of the people of the Great Migration helped lead to change in the South, which makes it possible for their own children and grandchildren to return. And that's how this is all connected. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and certainly we went from Africa back through America, and we always look forward to spending travel time with you every week and certainly to connecting with you during the week on our social networks, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and others. So follow us on those platforms, sign up for our newsletter, and our travel deals at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.